wings to set us free. And I hope that we're seeing that as we're exploring the Ten Commandments more fully, that there's a great love behind them. Uh, God gave these commands after he had rescued them, uh, but there's also a deep wisdom in the Ten Commandments that really promotes our flourishing and helps us get back to our design as image bearers. So with that, I'm excited to have uh, Scott Pryor teaching us today the Eighth Commandment. Scott's been at Redeemer for a couple years. He teaches law at Campbell downtown. Um, and in his work there, uh, he's actually interacted with the Eighth Commandment uh, a good amount. So I'm excited for him to share. Scott, thanks for joining us. And uh, I'll let you take it from here. All right. Thank you, Ross. And uh, thank all of you for being here this morning. I hope it uh, proves uh, edifying and uh, heartwarming, if you will, because I call this uh, not steal, applying the heart of the Eighth Commandment in the Hebrew word up there isn't important, except it's so brief. It is literally translated, not steal. There's no fancy thou shalts in front of it. It's just in your face. Don't steal. Okay. Well, if that's the rule, if that's the principle, how in the world does that relate to our hearts? What does that tell us more than don't do something? But maybe does it tell us that there is something implicit within it that we should do as well. Well, let's move on then, get a little start here. I know we've covered this before. Uh, that is sort of the context of the words that we're dealing with here in the Ten Commandments, the ten words as they're called in the Hebrew as well. But not stealing, well, why is that actually in the Ten Commandments? Assuming uh, you know, Moses got this information somewhere between the 13th and 14th centuries B.C., was that the first time anyone had ever thought about this commandment? Does that mean that had no one ever thought, had it people, everybody thought it was okay to steal before 1400 B.C.? And the answer is, well, no. Uh, we have an account there already back in Genesis 31 of Rachel having stolen her family's household gods. And uh, her dad comes chasing after Jacob saying, you know, where are they? Where are they? And you know, we don't have to go into the story, but there's nothing new here. Do not stealing is part and parcel of the principles of human life that were well known before the time of Moses. So the question for some student interaction here, since it's true that people knew you weren't supposed to steal before the Ten Commandments, why did God bother to add not stealing to the Ten Commandments? After all, there are only ten of them. You know, taking any one particular rule and taking putting it in there means it's you know, it's pretty significant, but why? Why is not stealing so important that it has to appear as one one of the ten? So, somebody, anybody? I, you know, I don't have my, you know, normal, I have my class roster and I just call on people. <laughs> and oh, by the way, in class, when I call on you, you stand up and you answer the questions until I say you can sit down. But, so I, and I could do that, but, uh, uh, yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not paid for being here either, so <laughs> so you can cut my salary if I'm too bad. I'm, I'm looking for the SET, Student Evaluations of Teaching, we get at the end. So anyway, but you know, why, why is it here? Why, why did God put it in the Ten Commandments? Just, it's just not, I mean, there's no deep theological principle here. It's just like, why is it here? What's, what's, why? Why do you think?
Basically, yeah. I mean, I mean, many of us have had children. I think all of us have been children. And, you know, is it the case that as parents, we have to give the same commandment to our children more than once, maybe? Or they get on the first try? No, of course. You reinforce things because you have to reinforce things because people is people. And we need to have things reinforced. We have to have things reinforced that are important. Lots of things are important. But there are a variety of things that are particularly important to a society. And this is the people of Israel coming out of Egypt where they had been slaves. I'm sure they had some personal property, you know, even as slaves, they had some property. But now they were in, in transit, if you will, across the Sinai. And they were living in very close proximity to each other, then tent by tent by tent. It had been pretty easy just to steal something from somebody else. And then they were going to ultimately be in the promised land because we know the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy just before they go into the promised land. And there they're going to be wide open, if you will, as they had development under uh, you know, God's grace in the land. There would be a lot more stuff to steal. And a basic principle of any good social order is that we have to respect boundaries. Now, I'm going to come back to the question, not now, but I just think about this in advance. Would this commandment have been relevant to Adam and Eve and everybody else had there been no sin? In other words, is the commandment not to steal relevant only after the fall into sin, or is it reflecting of something that's part and parcel of human nature and society that would be true of even if there were no sin? Another comparison would be, is the commandment against theft like the commandment permitting divorce? You've got to have it because, well, life in the fallen world demands it. Or is the prohibition against theft reflective of something that's part and parcel of human nature like marriage? We'll come back to that. Don't, don't, don't have to jump ahead of ourselves. It's important for social life. Clearly, every culture recognizes that, and it's reinforced because it's important and because we have to hear things more than once in order to be able to remember them. And even then, well, even then. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Context, creation. Fall, redemption, we've been through this before. Uh, Bruce, in fact, had taken us through some of this, but I want to set it up here a little bit more. So back in creation, what I call the creation triangle. Uh, not, I mean, I didn't make this up, mind you. I, I try not to make up anything that I, you're hearing from me today. I try to actually have some source to back up what I'm trying to say. But think back to the time of creation. We had God, of course, God the creator. God created the earth and everything in it, and he created Adam and Eve, humanity to live in the earth in perfect harmony both with God, with each other, and with the surrounding world. So everything would have been harmonious in the Garden of Eden. Uh, of course, that lasted all of, you know, two chapters of the Bible. We don't know how long it lasted, but it didn't last very long. And we ended up with the fall triangle here where there's still God. God's still God, of course. The earth, well, the earth is still here. Humanity's still here. So in what respect did the fall have any impact on, well, anything? Well, in one respect, nothing, because God, humanity, and the earth still remain in place. But in terms of relationships, that is society, that is people dwelling in connection with each other, and of course, as Christians realize that we're also dealing in a society with respect to relationship with God as well, in each of the relationships, we see not harmony, but rather disharmony. So God judges Adam and Eve, and he applies, meets out some 
specific uh, retribution or punishments on account of their sin. He doesn't destroy them. He has every right to do that, but he doesn't. So we see mercy already at the very beginning, but nonetheless, he pronounces judgment on them individually, in relationship with each other, and in their relationship to the earth, and on the earth itself, thorns and thistles and all that sort of stuff. We recognize, again, very abbreviated fashion, that the world itself changed, human beings changed, and the relationships between human beings and the world, human beings, the world, and God all changed as a result of sin. Okay, redemption. We're, we're moving pretty darn fast here. Uh, redemption triangle, Old Testament. I'm jumping ahead now to essentially Exodus. Um, again, it's God. Of course, God is always there. But now it's not the earth and humanity as large groups, but rather it's a small chunk of humanity, the people of Israel. It's very small and unimportant as far as people grouped back in the day went. And whatever this pattern of redemption is going to be, it's not the whole world, at least not yet. Rather, it's just this one little strip of land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. So God's redemption starts small, and obviously we know it gets big as time goes on. So that's the context in which we are going to be talking about the Ten Commandments, because that occurs very early in the process of redemption through Moses as the age of redemption. Not the beginning, mind you, because God had already taken them from slavery. He had already redeemed them out of slavery, and they were moving through the life toward the promised land. So redemption had already happened, but now they had to have reinforcement of rules for living as God's people in God's land. They just had that reinforcement of those rules. But there are lots of other rules. We know the Ten Commandments, but we know as you know different ways of counting them, but there are like 613 commandments throughout the course of uh, Torah, which really isn't very many when you think about it. I asked, I think it was Ross here, if you took up all of the policy prescriptions for the operation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, starting with the Book of Church Order, starting with manuals for dealing with uh, you know, child care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How many rules would we have just to operate this little congregation? I bet there's more than 613. I'm not about to count them. But the point is that 613 rules for living for an entire people group in an entire country, that's not much law. And then you take a big chunk of that, it's specifically devoted to the sacrificial system in the temple, or tabernacle, later the temple. You take that away from people because that's not going to be effective most people most of the time. Then there are even fewer rules by which to live. Well, how is this, I mean, how, what do you do with this? How do you both take the fact that there really weren't very many laws at all, and the fact you have a lot of group, large group of people, or large area, what do you do with this? And then some of them are all this sacrificial stuff, you know, we could do a, you know, just read the first, you know, nine chapters of Leviticus, just read through it and realize this is, this is pretty technical stuff, you know, and then you have all kinds of other stuff in Leviticus, and I mean, what do you do with all of this? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith has given us a handy way of categorizing the law that we're going to talk about here, and so there are several categories that we're going to take up into account, three as a matter of fact, besides this law, Again, obviously, this is section 3 of chapter 19, so there's 1 and 2 we're skipping. But this law they're talking about there is the covenant of works between God and Adam back in the day, back in Eden. Uh, that's commonly called the moral law. And by that, they're referring essentially to this. At this point, the context would be the Ten Commandments. God was pleased to give the people of Israel as a church under age. We read about that in Galatians 4, the reason we had for this morning in connection with the 
confession, church underage ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, you know, prefiguring the work of Christ. But notice here at the end, and this is talking about ceremonial laws now, and partly holding forth divers, different instructions of moral duties. So even the ceremonial law has embedded within it moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament, but the moral duties certainly are. Uh, to them also as a body politic, they after all were a nation, a nation of not a nation state quite like we think of, but they're still a group of people with a common orientation toward the law. He gave sundry judicial laws. Now, it's not simply judge-made laws, it was laws, if you will, in terms of you know, what we think of the statutory stuff today, which expired together the state of that people, not obliging any other now, us, further than the general equity thereof may require, or as my students in India would say, the general equity of their, thereof may require. So we have moral law, applies everywhere all the time, but how, good question. And we have ceremonial laws, which have been abrogated in the New Testament, nonetheless, contain within them moral duties. We have judicial laws, which we're going to talk about in some length here. Uh, and those don't apply to us either, except as the general equity thereof may require. Those words were chosen with care. I mean, these guys weren't just thinking, you know, come on, what, what's some good words we have here? There's history behind every choice of words here in, well, throughout the confession, but I see here in chapter 19, going well back in the New Testament, the end of the New Testament through Augustine, through medieval times. This, these were words that were rich, and these guys knew what they were talking about here. I mean, general equity, they couldn't, I mean, they had all read uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. They knew so much more that's embedded in here. We don't need to know all of that, but we want you, I want you to recognize that these are not simply words chosen lightly. Okay, so here's a way of trying to diagram it. Again, you'll see I like triangles. Uh, moral law, moral principles, judicial, ceremonial. See the three there, each has implications for the other. That's my point here is that we can look through the entire scope of the Old Testament law of Torah to derive from it with some challenges, some difficulties, some effort, some time, implications for how we should live in social interaction, how we should worship God, and the basic moral principles that should animate our lives. Okay, so it's all there, all valuable. We can't just carve it off and say, Leviticus, forget it, we don't care. No, you can't do that. It's all there for our edification. Okay, let's get down, let's get a little bit more specific here. Judgments about theft. Notice I use the word judgments there. What the confession calls judicial laws, many, most many, of the judicial laws as they are revealed in the Bible come in the form of judgments. If then, if then, you're judged, if this fact is true, then this is the punishment. If then, that's a judicial law. And just one, let's pick one about theft. The first one about theft we're gonna pick here. What about, oh, man stealing? If there's any kind of theft that would at the top, if you will, a capital, at the top and capital in terms of punishment at the bottom, it would be stealing a person. So whoever steals a man, number one, uh, whether he sells him or keeps him, you know, so we have elements of the crime, if you will, here. Go to law school, you take you know, criminal law, that each crime has a series of elements, each one must be proved, beyond a reasonable doubt and all of that. But here we have the elements, whoever steals a man, whether he sells him or is found in possession, shall be put to death. Okay, there you go. The first Example of theft in Exodus 21, following the Ten Commandments, is stealing another human being, the punishment for which is death. All right, but that's not all. Of course, there's much more judgments about theft. How about stealing stuff? 
is much more likely to happen to us today. Not exclusively. You heard the story about the uh, Chinese father whose son was stolen. But that's thankfully not common. But stealing stuff, well, that is regrettably far too common. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and element number one, element number two, kills it, excuse me, excuse me, I'm rewiring myself here, and sells it, he shall pay, kills it or sells it, either way, uh, he shall pay, rewiring, untangle myself, everything in one. Uh, he shall pay, what, five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Five and four? I'll come back to that. No one knows exactly, so you can't be too dogmatic about that. But drop down to 22.4. But, I added the word but. It demonstrates contrast here. If a stolen beast, now notice not ox or a sheep, but just beast, is found alive in his possession, aha, he hasn't managed to fence it or kill it, uh, whether it's an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall pay double. That's sort of the bottom line, the standard thing. Some things get heightened punishment, but we start out with a double punishment. But notice here, Exodus 22.4, ox, donkey, or sheep. What if in Exodus 22.1 case, where somebody either killed it or sold it, it was a donkey? Notice the word donkey doesn't appear in 22.1, but it does appear in 22.4. Does that mean that if you sell the donkey before you're caught, you're home free? Of course not. Of course not. These aren't the kind of rules that we see in the criminal law today, which always are very super hyper-precise. These were instructions to people who had, if you will, a measure of common sense. As judges, they would understand, okay, it's a donkey or a llama. I mean, whatever the case may be, if the circumstances are the same, the result will be the same as well. Why double? Probably. One, you got to get back what was stolen. That's pretty straightforward. And number two, you should be punished for stealing. Well, what's the simplest way of punishing? An equal amount. It corresponds to what was stolen. Why the extra punishment, if you will, for stealing other things? The best, I think, is the answer to those questions is they were income-producing creatures. Ox was extremely important to the agricultural life. It did the plowing. It did the threshing. It did a lot of stuff. Somebody stole your ox, you were shut down as a farmer. So it had these what we would call in contract law, consequential damages. Not simply losing the ox, but losing the income that would have been generated from that ox until it was managed to be replaced. So hence, it got an extra quintuple amount of damages. No one knows for sure, but so when we deal with this, we're looking at general equity. So we don't have to have particular correspondence of punishments with respect to what is stolen. But the idea is that when something is stolen, there might be nature of what is stolen might have an impact on the amount of punishment that's due on account of that theft. Yes? Yep. Well, they are both. They are examples of moral law in action. Thou shalt not steal. That's nice, but so what? I mean, you shouldn't steal. I do steal. So what? We need, if you're going to have an operating society, some mechanism by which to connect the moral principle, don't steal, to, well, what happens if you do steal? And this is an example of the judicials that show us what God delivered through Moses to the people of Israel as, well, what should happen if you do steal this or that? So they're an example of a moral principle in social action. But now you might say, well, where's the moral principle? Or excuse me, 
Is there anything ceremonial here? Well, yeah, I think it is. In terms of relationship with God, clearly having stolen something is going to interfere with that relationship. And apart from all of this, there would have to be atonement made in the sacrificial system. That's not here. You do find that in Leviticus. So it, it, it has the moral principle of not stealing, has social implications, punishment for theft, and what we think more narrowly religious implications, making atonement sacrifice to atone for the sin through guilt offering. Is that helpful? Well, the Puritans, Puritans is like, like this. They're bigger than this. So you got the English Puritans, got the New England Puritans who had different strains, and within each of them you have many different strains. So if you read, for example, and you can look it up online, say the ordinances of the city of Exeter in Massachusetts. It's fat, there are hundreds of rules. Some of them are just directly out of here, and some of them are just basic good old English common law stuff. It's fascinating to see how the Puritans in New England, where they had political freedom to do what they wanted to do, said the general equity is, we think it's pretty close. We're not applying it because it was in Moses, but we're applying it today because we think our situation is not a whole lot different than Moses' day. And we're also Englishmen, and we want all our rights as Englishmen and kinds of procedures and jury trials and all that, which they didn't have in Israel. So it's a fascinating mix, and you know, I covered sometime in class, you know, just look at this, where do they get these things? And so, you know, witches we'd put to death, well, that's right out of Moses, but that was right out of the common law, too. That's true everywhere in Europe. If you're a witch, you're gonna die. So it's a great mixture of all of them. The English Puritans were a little more, in my opinion, sophisticated about how to do this, uh, ultimately unsuccessful, um, but nonetheless, so there's a lot of different ways to pull this together. I'm still aiming to get us to the heart <laughs> of the Eighth Commandment, but I want to show just there's a lot of stuff going on here. Judgment restitution, we don't think of this one too often. Now, yeah, that's easy. But restitution, what's that about? It's the whole body of the law today as it was back then. Two things there. If man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and feeds another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and his own vineyard. So you are taking, in effect, somebody else's property by letting your livestock graze on someone else's property, but you didn't do it to steal it. It sort of happened. Providentially, it took place. Do you have to pay five times, four times, two times? No. You pay one time for what was used over. Now, you have to be from the best of your own field just to prevent people from taking advantage of this and accidentally letting their uh, livestock graze on somebody else's land. But the duty of making restitution for what you used in somebody else's property, that's still law today, too, by the way. Uh, we read cases about it where you, you know, a ship is in the storm in Lake Erie in the 1800s and has to tie up to somebody's dock because you get off my dock. I don't care if your ship's going to sink. It got ties up anyway. Survives. He has to pay for the use of the dock and for damage that was done as a result. But he can't, he's not being held liable as a criminal for trespassing on the dock owner's property. Well, it's the same principle that we see at work here. And the next one, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. This is an affirmative duty. If somebody's animal wanders off and they didn't have, you know, they didn't have ear tags or they didn't have little electronic things you stick in animals today to keep track of Fluffy. No, they didn't have any of that, but you had a duty to bring back that animal. You couldn't just keep it. Finders, keepers, losers, reapers was not the law. It's still not the law, by the way, just in case you're wondering. It's the law of the playground, but not the law. 
So we have judgment of restitution, giving back what isn't yours, or paying for what you used of somebody else's without their, without entering into an agreement ahead of time. Land was handled differently. A lot of stuff here. Uh, you couldn't sell your land permanently. Some exceptions if you were in town. Uh, you couldn't. Well, that was pretty special. Land was special. It was promised land. It was inheritance, not the law. You inherit something, you can't sell it permanently. Now, I'm not going to go off into the details of that, but it's important to recognize that personal property, animals mainly, were recognized as property. Land was recognized as property in some sense, but not in the full sense that we would recognize real estate today, where we consider it, uh, you know, I don't know how many houses I've owned over the course of my life, but quite a few. I've bought and sold them many times, and I'm not going to get them back in year 50 as a result of the year of Jubilee. The next one is more interesting. No restitution. I can use somebody else's property and not even make restitution under these circumstances. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you beat your olive trees, don't go over them a second time. It's for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you not shall strip it afterwards. Don't go through a second time. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. In other words, at some points, you could actually use somebody else's property, their grain, uh, their, their uh, grapes and the like, and not have to pay for it if you fell into the category of you know, dangerously dependent people. Um, so we see here that principles, now how do you put this one to action today? Well, we don't. We don't do this today, but there may be some general equity there or moral duty which suggests there's some basis for using property in some sense for the benefit of others, even under limited circumstances, without compensation. Unusual, but it was there. Uh, okay, putting and trying to put all this together in a very quick way. Uh, I quote here from Jonathan Burnside, a book, God, Justice, and Society in Ancient Israel. Very good book. Highly, highly recommend it to you. So he does a really, really good job. He's a lawyer. He also teaches law at the place somewhere in England, uh, Oxford, He's a bright guy, very serious Christian. I mean, you can tell just reading his work. He does a great, great job with it. Relationships, this is my word, then I'll quote from him. Relationships consistent with biblical laws were characterized as righteous. Righteous. And righteousness in ancient Israel is understood not simply in terms of personal rectitude. The older brother. He was not righteous. He observed every jot and tittle of the law with respect to his father, the older brother in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but he was not righteous. Rather, righteousness was a pattern of life that should come to expression in social relationships, which include you know, the relationship of familiar relationship with one's father, sibling relationship with one's brother, coming together in happy, joyous communion. Um, I won't, I'll skip over the quote from Burnside. Uh, what was the ultimate purpose of the Mosaic Law? Another good author here, uh, uh, Tom, not Tom Wright, uh, different Wright, Chris Wright. Uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, shorter book than the Burnside's, cheaper. Uh, highly recommended as well. Not only was ancient Israel under Torah to be relationally righteous, just as we talked about here, live in relationship with each other in a way that brings glory and honor to God and blessing to each other, it was to serve as a witness to its neighbors. I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to read his quote here, but uh, read the uh, Deuteronomy 4, the middle of Deuteronomy 4, where Moses, the preamble to the second giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, tells the people of Israel, if you follow these rules, all the neighboring nations will look at you and say something, you know, my paraphrase, wow, 
That's really cool. Everything is going really well for these people. Where'd they get this law? Oh, from their God. We should check this out. Israel as a community putting into practice Torah, living a lives of social righteousness would be attractive to their neighbor. Of course, we all know what happens. I'm skipping all the prophets because, you know, well, that didn't exactly work out as the way it should have, but that's the way it could have worked out. That's the way it was designed to work out. And might that have anything to say to us, uh, usins? I don't call y'all y'all. My, my mother's people call usins or youns, as the case may be. God, how about today? Fast forward from Moses to the present. God, Old Testament, Israel in the land. New Testament, the church and koinonia, that is, and the word that uh, Paul uses with respect to Old Testament laws. Tupos, a type, an example, and that's how the, where the concept of the uh, Westminster Divines to take moral principles from judicial laws, the general equity from judicial laws and moral duties from even ceremonial laws. Those come through for us to live in the church. How they come through, it can be challenging. But the basic idea is that it comes through to us. The church has succeeded Israel. We absorbed Israel into it. It's not as if we replaced ancient Israel, but we are grown out of it, organically connected, as Paul writes in Romans 11. But, and we do not have a land as Christians. We have no promised land. Ultimately, we're promised the entire earth, but we don't get that until Jesus returns in glory. But right now, we do have something in common, don't we? We have koinonia, typically translated fellowship, a rather weak translation of koinonia. I mean, it's a common word in the Greek world. I mean, go again, read read Aristotle, talks about koinonia being the common interest citizens have in the community. Common interest. That's like ownership. We have a real stake in this thing. We're not talking about church potluck suppers, as nice as they are. We're talking about the common interest we have in the body of Christ by virtue of the indwelling of the spirit of the risen Christ. So we have something really, really real here. In fact, the Hebrew word translated nakalah, inheritance, comes into the Old Testament, New Testament usage as Erebon, which can also mean inheritance or deposit, down payment, used with reference to the Holy Spirit. So we have something that's real, it just isn't, it isn't tangible in the same way as it was for Old Testament Israel. But nonetheless, the calling of the church is the very same, to live in righteousness. Ah, now we have to live not merely observing all the laws. Of course, we observe the laws. We do justice. No doubt we do justice. We don't steal and we make restitution. And we suffer the punishments gladly when we are found guilty of having done either of those things or not having made restitution when it was appropriate. We live that way, and then we will be, one hopes, perhaps attractive to the world around us. I'm, you know, I'm going to, again, skipping time for interest of time here, but the manner of life in the church is, is a way that in some respects is a paradigm we're living righteously in the world today. It's not just for Christians that we engage in the practices we're going to describe in a few moments here, but rather it's a good idea for everybody because everybody lives in society. It's not like we have a unique society that is somehow disconnected from the world around us, not at all. It's embedded in the world around us, and thus the way that we live should be attractive to the nations, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, in such a way that they will either come into the church itself or at least pick up some good practices and make everybody's life a little bit better here and now. Skip that one entirely. Okay, 
Well, you can't go wrong in a you know, Presbyterian church by quoting from John Calvin. And he makes this point. And that, that's why I'm quoting from him on the Eighth Commandment. And it's, again, it's long, and, you know, it's, but I, I think it's worth reading here. We must bear in mind also that an affirmative precept, affirmative precept, as it's called, is connected with the prohibition. Don't steal implies a positive. Okay, what's the positive? The affirmative. Because even if we abstain from all wrongdoing, like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, even if we abstain from all wrongdoing, we do not thereby satisfy God, who has laid mankind, not just Christians, mankind, under mutual obligation to each other that they may seek to benefit, care for, and succor their neighbors. Hence, in order that we may not be condemned as thieves by God, we must endeavor as far as possible that everyone should safely keep what he possesses, obviously, not obviously, but it certainly enforces that point, and that our neighbor's advantage should be promoted no less than our own. So the whole principle of the Eighth Commandment is based on some notion of property, but that property doesn't exist for us only, obviously exists for us, but it exists as a means by which we can be a blessing to those around us. But there's more. Since God has ordained this give and take among us, like I teach contracts, like give and take, you know, contract, so that no one can do without help of his neighbors, we are also obliged to them in turn. Everyone must look to his own ability and resources and to the graces he has received, blessings from God, so that he may serve others just as he must receive from them. What then is necessary? It's not enough that my neighbors serve me, for God did not only create them for me, obviously not, I'm in a relationship, reciprocal relationship with them. I must also equip myself for my part, knowing that I was also created for them. We're getting closer to the heart, aren't we here? Let me offer myself and ask only to provide what I have received so that there may be a reciprocal duty as our Lord has commanded. This is what we must do. So the nature of theft expands into the concept of property. Property in term is understood not only negatively as me and mine protected from theft through punishment and civil recourse, but also as a means by which I can do good. In other words, is justice with regard to property and property law? You bet. Is there righteousness with regard to property? Absolutely. There is absolutely a notion of righteousness, good social relationships within the church, but not limited to the church as well. Virtues and vices. I appreciated Ross's prayer. If you haven't heard it already, the prayer of confession today. He mentioned two of these three. And then in the sermon, we got the third. So we got this thing covered here. Ross mentioned greed and generosity. The idea of vices and virtues is, comes from the Greeks, but it's you know, certainly reflected in the biblical text as well, that we want to have a good virtue. That is a habit, a characteristic, a way of life that demonstrates good relationships. We often fall off on one ditch or the other. So what's the ditch on either side of the virtue of generosity? Greed. That's the one that Ross happened to mention in the congregational prayer. And carelessness, or we could say prodigality. That's the one that was mentioned in the sermon. So we can triangulate, if you will, in the manner in which we should live by picking out the virtue that reflects a pattern, a habit, a way of living that avoids either vice on either extreme on the other side, whether it's greed, hoarding more and more from me, and I want more, I want more all the time, or a carelessness with respect to our property with which God has blessed us. Now, how do you thread this needle? Well, that's, there's no rule. There's no rule that says, okay, this much for you, 
that much of everybody else, dot that I, cross that T, and you're done. It doesn't work that way. It requires wisdom. And that's it's in short supply. Now, it's always been in short supply. Don't, don't, let's not kid ourselves here. So let's finally, oh, oh, I like this one, my question. Who's the most generous person? Who? Those who heard the sermon should know. God, yes, God is the most generous person. And whose image are we created? God's image. Huh. huh. Might there be a connection there? Well, yes, yes, there is a connection there. Westminster Confession, larger catechism. About the confession, the larger catechism here. Commend that to your attention. That's a, it's a slow read, very, very slow read, very, very precise. But let's see if we can reorganize it. Questions 141 and 142, dealing with the Eighth Commandment. The Westminster Confession really speaks in terms of virtues and vices. You can have two, as I have had here, two columns. What are the virtues? What should we do? And what are the vices? What should we not do with property? Well, sins, vices, theft, robbery, fraud, man-stealing. Yeah, okay, those are pretty straightforward. We see those coming right out of the Bible, and not even out of the Bible only. People knew that even apart from the Scriptures. What are some virtues that we associate with respect to ownership of property? Well, the main virtue is moderation of judgment, will, and affections with respect to property. What's an example of that? Faithfulness and justice in contracts. I teach contracts, we talk about this. Faithfulness in contracts, the law enforces that one pretty well. Does a pretty good job, contract remedies and damages and all that. Justice in contracts, we don't care much about that. We don't care. Our legal system simply does not. Civil law, go over to France or Germany, they care much more about justice and contract. That does the contract itself be somewhat fair. <coughs> that is that you give as much as you get. Uh, we don't care much about that, just as a common law legal system. You know, you make a bad bargain, a shame on you. Not shame on me for taking it from you, but shame on you for having been a sucker. We don't care. Our legal system doesn't care. Do we care? Yes, we do. We should. And obviously the converse, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts. If you promise to do something, well, do it. <laughs> and oppression by contract. Can you oppress people by contract? Well, uh, Leviticus 19 talks about that. Yes, you can. Again, they had a culture in which they didn't have employment relationships like we have today. You were either had your own property and you made a living off your farming or you perhaps had, you know, lived in town and you had some skills and you did that. Or, the worst of all worlds is you are a day laborer. That was rough. And I've been in other parts of the world, I've seen what it's like to be a day laborer. And you do earn your daily bread. That's it. You're never going to get ahead if you're a day laborer in ancient Israel. Which is why they had the year of Jubilee and the reset to at least give that family some chance to get started over, not become a permanent underclass. But nonetheless, we see giving and lending freely. That's what we are supposed to do. That's the positive. That's the example of moderation of judgment, will, and affections with respect to property. Uh, the vice is unnecessary lawsuits. I, I'm not sure those ever happen, but anyway, uh, that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> virtue, care, and study of getting, using our property. You know, we have an obligation to develop our skills and knowledge and abilities with respect to property. That's one. On the other hand, distrustful, distracting study to get, keep, and use property. We can be a little too much interested in our property. How often, you know, do we go online to check our investments, for example? Do, you know, we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to get ahead? 
what's an ordinate amount of time trying to get ahead? I can't give you a rule. There is no rule. It varies with time, place, and circumstances and the person, but you have to realize that we can fall in either ditch. Not caring, not developing ourselves in a productive, useful way, or caring so much about what we have and how to get the last dime that we fall off the ditch into the other side as well. Greed and prodigality are both vices. Generosity is the virtue. Practicing a lawful calling versus idleness. Uh, mostly, I think they had in mind there, not the uh, poor, because there weren't very many idle poor in England, uh, but the idle rich. Uh, you know, uh, nobility in particular, that's who they had in mind. That's the bar which that one was directed particularly. Practicing frugality, that's a virtue. On the other hand, prodigality and wasteful gambling is a vice. Advancing wealth of others and ourselves. That's what we're supposed to do with what we have. We're supposed to advance wealth of others and ourselves. They're not alternatives, not disqualifying. It's not a false binary here, but nonetheless, it's something we have to keep in mind. Defrauding ourselves of due use and comfort of what God has given us. There can be a way, a manner of life that is not as comfortable that as is appropriate. Well, that's not good either. And I don't know that many of us suffer from that, but, uh, but it can happen. And we read about that every now and then. Somebody died in poverty, apparent poverty, but had millions of dollars. Well, maybe that happens, and that's, not, that's a vice as well, something to be avoided. In conclusion, it says in conclusion, so I guess it is, quoting from 1 Timothy, uh, what Paul says here in his charge to Timothy, in a letter to Timothy about, okay, you're going to become the pastor now. Here's, here's what you should do. And he's telling Timothy what you should teach at this point in the first Timothy. As for the rich in this present age, Timothy, you tell them, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. To enjoy. They are to do good, rich folks, if there are any. Uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is truly life? Or better put, who is truly life? God. When Paul writes that you know, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil or all evil, it's not that money itself is a you know, fairly innocuous, morally indifferent phenomenon, but why is money such a threat to our spiritual well-being? Because we substitute having it for dependence upon God. When God blesses us with it, that's a great gift. And we are both to provide for ourselves and our family, those in our charge, and to be generous. That's the heart of the Eighth Commandment, generosity. Questions, comments, observations, corrections? Wow. Oh, thank you, somebody. I mean, God gave these commandments not simply as a set of arbitrary, capricious rules, but rather they correlate to God's character. And we create in God's image, individually and as a society, whether it's the church society, of which we're a media part, or the larger civil society as well. Indeed. 
for the, if, if anybody's interested, I ran just a few, I think 15 photocopies of what I worked on before working up this, uh, you know, the, what I talked about here today. And uh, so if anybody wants, I mean, there's a lot more detail in here, more of the detail than almost anybody wants to know. But if you happen to be somebody who wants to know, they're here. The only thing I ask, I ask two things. One is contact me with any, you know, corrections. They can be typographical or theological. And I don't, you know, share it because it's not a final work. It's not, I, I'm not, you know, I'm willing to share with anybody and if, and if you share with somebody else, well, I'm, I'm not going to sue you or anything, but it's kind of a, it's kind of like, I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily going to, I'm not ready for it to see the, the, yeah, don't, I mean, goodness, who, yeah, like, who would do that? <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much. I hope that was helpful, and uh, go and be generous.